We're going to be in Exodus. Uh, the passage that I'll be reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 16. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. You can have your seats. It's good to be here this morning. I am extremely grateful. I think it's, it's really awesome that on a day like this, we get to gather together, and many of us don't see each other throughout the week. We experience different things throughout the week. We have our shortcomings throughout the week, and yet we gather together weekly and remember what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. We're reminded of our identity in Christ. We're reminded of the fact that we do not earn or work for salvation, but that Jesus paid for it by his blood at the cross. And I was just encouraged this morning in worship, being reminded of that, that this morning... Around the world, millions of people are gathering, worshiping Jesus, remembering our Savior, encouraging one another. It's a beautiful thing what what Christ has accomplished and and what the church is. And I'm grateful to be here before you all this morning. We are continuing our series in Exodus. We're about a month and a half in almost. And today we're reading from chapter 7, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10. There's no way I'm going to read all of that. Uh, so don't worry about that. But I do want to read a quote by a man named Alistair Roberts on Exodus, on just the importance of Exodus and how valuable Exodus is. He says, the Exodus is central to the scripture, central to the gospel, and central to the Christian life. Whatever book of the Bible you are reading and whatever Christian practices you are involved in, echoes of the Exodus are in there somewhere. And for those of you who may have missed some Sundays or maybe you're not caught up on where we are, we are at in the story of Exodus, uh, instead of me giving you a rundown on where we're at, I want us to watch a video together this morning. It's a four-minute video, and it, it'll catch us up on where we're at in the story of Exodus. So we'll go ahead and play that now. The book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. 
Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happened. There, yeah. So this morning we'll be going through nine of the ten plagues. So I hope you're encouraged by these plagues that we'll be talking about this morning. This is all in response to Pharaoh's response to Moses of who is the Lord, uh, having no idea who he is and, and really not caring for who he is because he believes that he is, is God and holds all the power. And his question to who is the Lord, well, God's about to answer that, and it's going to get pretty intense. And my goal this morning is, as we go over these nine plagues, um, I think we have an image for those nine that you'll see on here, but 
I'm going to read a portion of scripture, like a warning for the first set of three, and then I'll read another portion of scripture for the second set of three, and then another for the last set of three. And during each plague, there'll be a, a small picture behind me of that, of that plague. And during each one, I want to point out some observations and, and applications for that. Now, of course, because there's nine of them, I can't spend a whole lot of time. There are tons of details in these plagues that, just for the sake of time, um, I won't be able to get into. But, but I do want to share um, what I believe is beneficial to us this morning. So we'll start with that first set of three plagues. And this is the first warning. And this is what we read this morning. We'll read it again. So... We'll be up and down from our Bibles quite a bit. Just by the way, if if maybe you're new to redemption, you can always catch a Bible on your way in. In the front right there, we have Bibles out there for you. You can take those home. If you don't have one, those are yours to keep. Uh, But just in case you forget them, you can always catch one on the way in. So we'll start in verse 14. We'll read through 18 of chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water in the Nile. So we see this first plague that God brings about on the Egyptians, on Pharaoh, as he turns the Nile into blood. The Nile, which is an important resource to the Egyptians. Of course, it's their way of survival because it's water, but it's also something that they go to quite a bit. So we saw that in chapter 2, Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe in the Nile, and that's where she found Moses. And we see here that Pharaoh is going out to the Nile, which is something he does quite often. And God tells Moses and Aaron to meet him there. And, they, and he warns Pharaoh. And of course, because Pharaoh doesn't listen, he turns the Nile into blood. And I think it's interesting here that instead of Pharaoh being in awe or in wonder of God's power and how amazing he is, he calls his magicians to replicate this act, and the magicians do so by their secret arts. And because of that, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. And I think it's something we need to point out about these magicians by their secret arts is that although they can replicate this, they can't reverse it, and they can't end it. They can only replicate it. Their power is limited. They produce like a phony replica of this, And we see that God's power is the real deal. God's is the real thing. God produces it as he pleases, and God can take it away as he pleases, and man cannot. Again, for the sake of time, we'll move on to the next plague, and this is plague number two, the plague of the frogs. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that because he will not let the Israelites go, he will cause frogs to cover the entire land of Egypt. And literally, y'all, like these frogs are covering every part. They're not just outside of their homes, but they're sneaking into their homes. They're on their beds. They're in their cooking utensils. They're on them everywhere. It's disgusting. And again, 
Pharaoh calls his magicians to produce the same thing, and they do, but again, they can't reverse it. They can't put an end to it. In verse 8, we see a little, a little like change of attitude in Pharaoh. It says, chapter 8, verse 8 says, Then Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord. So first he's like, who is the Lord? And now he's like, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So he's not quick to harden his heart as he was in the first plague, but he asks for some relief. And we go, when we go down to verse 15 of chapter 8, we read this. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, because Pharaoh asked to plead with the Lord, Moses and Aaron, go to, Moses goes to the Lord, and then the frogs are removed. God answers that prayer. And verse 15 says, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. And would not listen to them, as the Lord said. And church, so often, this can be us. We can act like Pharaoh in this sense. That when chaos ensues, it's then that we want to run to God and make a deal with God of some sort. We go to God in the sense of like, God, if, if you would do this, I'll serve you. If you would do this, I'll... I'll do this. Or we go to God to get a desire fulfilled, a need fulfilled. God, if you provide this for me, fill in the blank, whatever that is, I'll do this. And then if God does it as he did in this case, we often fall back. And, and that is because our initial desire going after God wasn't out of a love for God. It was out of a selfish ambition, a selfish desire to have our needs fulfilled. So it wasn't real in the first place. And, and trust me, Chris, Christian, trust me, church, I love when God uses trials and heartaches to get our attention. There's something beautiful about that. And God will use that to draw us closer to him in a sense of dependence. But oftentimes I've, I've heard people do the opposite and, and they come to God trying to make, I mean, that was me before, before Christ saved me. Like getting caught up with certain things and like, God, if you'll save me from this, I'll do this. And then my promise was, was never true because it wasn't genuine in the first place. And this is what Pharaoh is doing here. But this doesn't catch God off guard. Because as we read in verse 15, it ends with, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh hardens his heart as the Lord had said. God's ten steps ahead of this thing. He's not caught off guard by any of this. So he continues to warn, and he continues to bring about these plagues to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we move on to the third plague, the gnats, the disgusting gnats. God says to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may, may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they do so, and all the dust becomes gnats. I think it's pretty cool what God can create from dust. He can create us. He can create gnats. He's just that powerful. And the magicians come in again because Pharaoh brings them in. They've already replicated the first two, so the magicians come in and attempt to replicate these gnats from dust, but they cannot. And they tell Pharaoh, this is 
the finger of God. So even the magicians recognize the Lord's power. Even the magicians recognize their limited power. And they're starting to have this sense of how amazing and mighty God is. And they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And do, does Pharaoh listen? Of course not. We're going to pick up and read together chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. And we'll have that on the screen for us to read in case you don't have your Bible in front of you. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And you would think, being flooded with gnats and and frogs and the Nile turning into blood, Pharaoh would think twice, but of course he doesn't. Dude's heart is hard, and he doesn't give in. So just as God promises, he releases flies. And it's, it's heavy. I do want to talk about the land of Goshen, but I'm going to wait until we get to the the plague of hail because God brings up the land of Goshen quite a bit, and I think it's important. But what I want to point out here about this plague is Pharaoh's fight for control. Pharaoh's fight for power. Although God is flexing and God is showing his might, Pharaoh is still fighting for power. And for control. And we read this in this text. Pharaoh says things to Moses like, Fine, I'll let you go, but you can only worship God within this land. You cannot go outside of the land. And Moses is going back and forth with Pharaoh. No, this is not what the Lord wants. He wants us to leave this land to worship him. Or Pharaoh says things later on like, Okay, fine. I'll let you go outside the land to sacrifice in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. So Pharaoh is limiting or putting God in this box. He refuses to fully submit to God. In chapter 10, verse 3, we see that God tells Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And again, I mean, Sean pointed this out last week. We're often like Pharaoh. Maybe we want to believe that we're like Moses and we're mighty and we're powerful and we're doing these acts, but we we often act like Pharaoh. And, And the way that Pharaoh is fighting for control and power, you and I tend to do the same. We want control. We don't want full submission. You and I can think that, hey, I'm good with Jesus. But in reality, we're not fully submitted to Jesus. 
We're not fully surrendered to Jesus. Maybe there's areas in our lives that we're giving to God, but we don't want to let him in these areas here. We surrender to God in, in these areas, but when it comes to this stuff, I still want control over that. I still want to call the shots on that. Just like Pharaoh, we want power. We want to dictate what this looks like. And we refuse to fully humble, humble ourselves before God. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, I mean, Jesus says it himself. In Matthew 16, 25, he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The Christian life is one in full surrender, in full submission, losing our lives for the sake of Christ, refusing to jockey for position, refusing to box God in and say, I'll serve you as long as the terms look like this. And maybe there's fear in that. Maybe there's fear in not wanting to fully submit to God. But there's freedom in that, y'all. There's freedom in that because, because God loves us. Because God knows what is best for us. Because our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. And yes, it's a step of faith. Yes, it, it takes a lot to open up that hand and maybe let whatever that is go and trust God with that. But that's the best bet because we'll mess it up because we're flawed and ruined human beings. But God is perfect in all of his ways. And a life that is fully surrendered, I think, is a life that is enjoyed. A life that is at peace, knowing that in these areas, I don't have control, but the Lord does. And I trust him in that. There's something beautiful about that. We'll move on to the fifth plague, the livestock. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here. It's because there's other plagues to get into. But basically, in this plague, all the animals die. Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he still did not let the Israelites go. And we pick up in plague number six, the boils. It's interesting that in this plague, God commands Moses to be the one to bring about the sign. And as the events continue to unfold, the narrative shows Moses maturing in the role that the Lord had called him to at the burning bush. Remember that Moses was hesitant at the burning bush. God called him. I'm going to send you to the Egyptians. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you're going to say, let my people go. And Moses was scared. Moses hesitated. Moses made up excuses. Insecure about some things. So then God calls Aaron. And Moses and Aaron kind of tag team this thing. So Moses, God commands Moses to do these to, to, do, to warn Pharaoh, but it's Aaron who's, who's holding the staff. It's Aaron who's producing some of these signs that God is using. And now this one with the boils, it's the first time we see it's actually Moses. So, I mean, big deal. And I think it is a big deal. Because we see here that God doesn't give up on Moses. God calls him at the burning bush and even though Moses hesitates and makes these excuses and then Aaron comes in the picture, God is still maturing 
Moses. And it's the same for us, y'all. God does not give up on us, although we fall short, although we hesitate. Maybe the Spirit nudges us to do something, pushes us to go and pray for someone, or, or to give, or, or to be present, and to love, or to go somewhere, but we hesitate, or these insecurities are in us, and we've kind of backed up. I mean, you might be finding yourself thinking like, man, I messed up. God told me to do this, and I was disobedient and, like, discouraged about that. But be encouraged that just as God did not give up on Moses, he has not given up on us. God is faithful. God continues to mature us, and we see God's patience in this. This ain't something to, like, pump us up and make us feel good about ourselves. It's actually something that points to God's faithfulness, God's patience. Serve a... A loving God. And we see here that with these boils, that the magicians come again. So I don't know where they were the last couple of, of plagues, but they come on the scene again, and they don't even try. The Bible says that they, they can't even stand before Moses because they're covered in boils. They're plagued by these boils, and they can't even attempt to, to uh, replicate this thing. And then uh, that plague and the boils ends with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So I want to talk to you this morning about something called the doctrine of concurrence. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) No, Sean, Sean really did an amazing job last Sunday breaking that down because we see a lot. You're like, oh, man, not again. (laughs) But we see a lot, especially in this portion of Scripture where, and and we saw it in the video, but Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. And if you weren't here for that sermon, I would encourage you to go listen to that. Sean did an amazing job with breaking that down. And uh, and I I got some resources on some of that stuff by R.C. Sproul and that doctrine of concurrence, and I'd love to share that with you if, if after service you want to find me and you want to look into some of that yourself. But Go and listen to that sermon. It's a, it's a great way of breaking that down. The next three plagues, uh, we're going to read chapter 9, verses 13 through 19 together. Chapter 9, 13 through 19. And it says, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and pre- present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been, has, never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home, will die if the hail falls on them. 
Plague number seven is, is on this hail. And I wanted to point out this, um, this portion of scripture that talks about Goshen. We didn't read it in here, but God says, in the land of Goshen where my people dwell, the hail will not touch them. So the hail will hit everywhere else in Egypt around this land where our people dwell. And God does that to cause a line of division. This is my people. And here are the Egyptians. And this land of Goshen that God is protecting is the same land that in Genesis, as Joseph brings his family to Egypt, they dwell in the land of Goshen because they are shepherds. And shepherds, according to Joseph in Genesis 46, were an abomination to the Egyptians. So because they, because the Israelites are an abomination. They're dwelling in the land of Goshen. And this land that is considered by the Egyptians an abomination and less than where the immigrants dwell, where they are not as valuable, God is protecting, God is guarding, God is watching over with the hail, with the darkness we'll see in, in Plague 9. God protects this very land. And not only that, but God goes beyond that. And we've heard it over and over again. Let my people go. God identifies himself with this group of people, with these slaves, with these people that are considered less than. God identifies with them and calls them my people. Let my people go. And yes, that is the people of God. But we also see here throughout the Bible, we see it in the New Testament, we see it in the life of Jesus. That as Christians, we should very much be about those who are considered less than, less valuable. Those who the culture would say are, are worthless. The immigrant, the fatherless, the widow. This is all throughout Scripture. We see it in James, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Psalms, we see it in Matthew. I mean, Jesus lived this life out, dwelling with those, eating dinner with those. And if, if this is something that God is passionate about, as Christians, may we be passionate about. Plague number eight are the locusts. God released these locusts, and they are everywhere. Everything that has not been devoured yet by the storm, by these plagues that God has unleashed, the locusts are taking care of that. If there's something alive, there's a plant alive, the locusts are taking care of that. God releases them. They tear up Egypt, whatever is left of it. And we see God's power. At the end of this plague, Pharaoh pleads again to, for God to release these locusts, and God does so. In verse 19, it says, The Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust, listen y'all, not a single locust was left in the land of Egypt. God brings in all these locusts to tear up Egypt, and then he's so powerful that he removes them, and not one of them is left. That's why in Psalm 95, 4 and 5, it says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed dry land. A mighty God, a powerful God. 
but also this gracious God and this loving God. And it's encouraging that that's the God we are submitted to. That's the God we love. That's the God, and we're part of his family, adopted, grafted into his family. We're going to end on this, on this last plague, and then we'll talk about some bigger picture things. And basically, the last plague is darkness. Darkness falls over the land for three days. But it's funny because where the people of Israel dwell, there's light. And I just picture like being there, looking at, you know, the land of darkness where the Egyptians are and just giggling like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> but again, God is drawing that distinction between his people and Pharaoh. Now, I know that was a lot. I know that nine plagues are not easy to, to cover in, in 30, 35 minutes. But with the time I have left, I want to talk about some big observations, some big picture things as we, as we take a step back and, and take a look at these nine plagues collectively. It's interesting that in the first five plagues that God is confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. The Egyptians worshipped these things that God used as a plague against them in the first five. And God is, is using the very things that they worship to turn against them. And you and I, although we may be blind to the fact, we can fall into this place as believers where we are also worshiping things outside of God. Well, we are putting things on a pedestal too close to the Lord. And if we are not careful, those very things that we worship outside of Jesus can turn against us and devour us. For me, one of those things that I struggle with finding balance in is with my phone. Just because I always have it on me, and I am drawn to always have updates, to always, you know, look at the newest thing out, whether that's in the news or that's in sports or that's in social media. And in a very real way, I like worship my phone and have this like idolatry toward it that gets in the way of my relationship with the Lord. So much so that I've had to literally put boundaries around the use of my phone. From this time to this time, it's turned off. Or it's put in the drawer so I dictate when I need to use it. And it doesn't get in the way of my reading time or my praying time or my time with my family. Collectively, this could be something like, you know, in our culture, it could be work. This idolatry of work. And we saw this early on in, in Exodus. The enemy, Pharaoh, uses work as a distraction for the Israelites to worship God, and he makes them work harder. He puts more burdens on them, work more, so they can forget about wanting to worship God in the wilderness. And today, we can be so drawn to work, so driven to, to, to want to give all that we got, that if we're not careful, we can get in the way of, of our worship of God, the one who is deserving of worship, the one who gives us a body to work, the one who provides that job that we have, the one who provides the finances that we make from that. It can be consumerism. It can be school. It can be a relationship that we're in. I mean, let's fill in the blank, whatever that looks like for us. And if we are not careful to evaluate that and to bring that before the Lord, 
And we give too much time and attention and value and money to that. And we put it on this pedestal that's too close to God. It will devour us. It will eat away at us. And we have to make sure that the Lord is the one that we are fully worshiping. Not perfectly, but submitted to, surrendered to, given our time to. The way I see these plagues tying into who Jesus is, is in these nine plagues, we see God's sovereignty over creation. We see his sovereignty over the water with the plague in the Nile. We see his sovereignty over the animals with the frogs and the livestock. We see his power over nature, causing hail to come and a storm to come. And we see this power in the life of Jesus, y'all. We see it as, as Jesus walked the earth. I think about the times when Jesus walked on water. When Jesus, from the boat, calms the storm. I mean, it's so heavy that it's rocking the boat and Jesus calms the storm. When Jesus turns the water into wine, when he tells Peter to cast his net onto the other side and then multiplies the fish and they bring in a huge load of fish. The same power displayed by God in these plagues is the same power we see in the life of Jesus as he walked the earth. And I want to end with this. That as we, as we read on these plagues, as we study these plagues, we do see destruction taking place for the sake of deliverance. And we can very much look at the cross and see the same exact thing taking place. Destruction at the cross taking place for the sake of deliverance. In these plagues, we see both judgment and mercy. Judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and mercy on the Israelites, on the people of God. And in the same way, at the cross of Christ, we see both judgment and mercy. The judgment that you and I are deserving of. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That judgment is placed on Christ, and the mercy is given to you and I at the cost of his blood. And as Christians, as believers, let us be reminded that we stand on this side of mercy. Not because we earned it, but because Christ paid for our freedom and our forgiveness. And let us also be reminded that as we stand on this side of mercy, that there are others who do not stand on this side of mercy. That there are others who are still standing on the side of judgment, who do not know Christ, who do not know the forgiveness of Jesus, that Jesus' blood was shed for their forgiveness. And may we be reminded that God calls us to be ambassadors, to not just lay around and soak in the benefits of God, but be, we are ambassadors, imploring others, to come and be reconciled to Christ. May our hearts be driven to pray for those who don't know Jesus. To share this truth, the gospel truth, with those who don't know Jesus. Praying for our city, praying for our coworkers, praying for our neighbors, that just as you and I have been adopted into the family of God by the blood of Christ, that they too would be adopted and grafted into the family of God.
Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be able to meet this morning. I'm grateful that despite a busy work for, for some, maybe a, a, a struggling week, a burdensome week, we have come this morning as your sons and daughters, and we get to gather and be reminded of your goodness, your faithfulness, your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a picture of how you delivered the Israelites and us being able to realize that in the same way you have delivered us through Christ. God, let us be encouraged by your spirit this morning to find security in your presence, to find security in who you are to identify with you, Christ, to know that we are loved, we are forgiven because of Christ and take on that righteousness and be encouraged and secure. But also, Spirit, remind us that there are others who do not know you. I pray that we would see those who don't know you fill these seats Fill other seats in other churches. Sit at dinner tables and hear stories and testimonies and hear the gospel and hear your love and be drawn to you, be drawn to forgiveness, be drawn to repentance. Thank you, God, for our time together. Thank you for this time of quietness that we're going to have, this time of solitude. Thank you that we get to worship and be reminded of your truth in this way. God, we love you. We're grateful for your son, Jesus. Amen.